But I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Bible as you're able to the book of Ruth. It's one of the shorter books in the Old Testament. It's found just after the book of Judges and just before the book that we're studying in our evening services, 1 Samuel. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, our text today can be found starting on page 222. 222. Now, to orient us to the book for just a moment, given that this is our our first week in Ruth, um, the book of Ruth, as the name suggests, is named after one of the chief characters in the book, a woman named Ruth. And throughout our study of the book of Ruth in the following weeks, we're going to see Ruth's faith on display in some pretty remarkable ways and how the Lord uses Ruth um, throughout our study of the book of Ruth. But though Ruth will have a prominent role to play in the book, at the end of the day, the book's really not primarily about Ruth. Actually, the book's more about another character in the book, a woman named Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, a woman we're going to read about a little in our text this morning, and specifically, the book's about how God brings Naomi and through her, the nation of Israel, from, from emptiness and a tragic near-death experience to fullness and to life. This book is about how God restores things that look like they're beyond restoration, and Naomi is the chief example of that in our book. So with that in mind, hear now the word of the Lord, just reading the first five verses today, Ruth 1, 1 through 5, and as always, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. In the earliest, early 20th century, um, there was an Irish explorer, somebody who, who came from um, uh, the UK, I believe, whose name was Ernest Shackleton. And um, Ernest Shackleton uh, made a name for himself in the early part of the 20th century through his exploration of the Antarctic continent. Um, he lived during a time when that continent, Antarctica, was something of the final frontier in exploration. And after the South Pole had been reached, uh, perhaps the biggest prize in Antarctic exploration, Shackleton, he he conceived of another adventure that would at least be equally as challenging. He put together this epic plan at the beginning of the 20th century to land at one point on the Antarctic continent and then traverse the entire continent on foot to the opposite end. Now, since the South Pole at that point had already been reached, it was thought that this was one of the last great feats of adventuring to be accomplished. And so in 1914, just a couple days after the UK entered World War I, Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, set sail on what would turn out to be a multi-year quest, not for glory, but actually for survival in Antarctica. 
Um, there's a fascinating book I just read, a few of you I know have two, called Endurance, that details this dramatic adventure uh, to the Antarctic. And to make a long story short, this grand exploration, well, it didn't even come close to succeeding. Because first, the Endurance, when it started to arrive in the area, it got stuck in some heavy pack ice well off the coast of their intended landing point. And for about 10 months, the ship drifted around in the area, stuck in the pack ice, unable even to get to the land. And then, after that, after those 10 months of drifting around, well, the pressure of all of that pack ice coming about the ship began to become too much for the little endurance, and the ship began to break apart, forcing the crew to abandon ship. The crew then lived for the next six months on a floating piece of ice and um, had to make do with hunting and trying to survive on this floating piece of ice for about six months. And then when that floating piece of ice began to break apart, they had to hop in lifeboats that they saved from the Endurance and make their way over the next week to an abandoned island called Elephant Island. Now, there were a lot of twists and turns, and they were eventually rescued from that little island a few months later, about six months later. But when all was said and done, this meticulously planned quest, it was a, a sojourn, we might say, across the Antarctic continent for glory, quickly descended into a quest for bitter survival. And at every fight for survival, the crew suffered one loss after another. And although amazingly, no one in the expedition died, they were probably as close to death as you can imagine when they were finally and dramatically rescued after this two-year-plus failure of an expedition. Now, I bet that, that none of us, correct me if I'm wrong later, but I bet that none of us have ever embarked upon a quest like that, and a quest like happened in the endurance in the early 20th centuries. But I also bet that there's a certain pattern in that expedition that may hit a little bit closer to home than we initially realize. Let me put it this way. How many of you have ever set out at one point or another with aspirations of a better life, expectations maybe of the perfect family, the perfect marriage, the perfect career, only to have your dreams crushed, your plans torn up, and what you thought should have been a walk in the park not even make it to the park in the first place? How many of you have suffered unexpected loss that derails even your most precious pursuits, and on the other side of that loss, you have no idea how to begin picking up the pieces, and far from being a quest for glory any longer, really just feels like a fight for survival? Well, this is the story of Ruth in a nutshell. It's a story that begins itself with a sojourn, with a journey to a foreign land. It begins with the quest of a family, a quest not necessarily for glory, but a quest for a better life. But what starts out perhaps in their eyes as this quest for a better life, where, where their family, their young family would thrive, is actually a story of sin, a story of loss. And it turns out to be, after just five verses, a story of bitter survival. In the span of just these first five verses, we hear how this small Israelite family, how they're ripped apart, and how things precipitously spiral into death and despair, and how Naomi in particular becomes like the nation of Israel as a whole, empty and without a great outlook at all for the future. 
And in all of that, we're faced with the question that when dreams are crushed, when plans fall apart, whether it's because of something we did or didn't do, can God fill up again what we have made empty? Can God fill up again the things that have been made empty? And that's our big idea as we look at the passage this morning. It's really a question. That is, again, can God fill up again what has been made empty? And as we walk through this short passage before us with this question in mind, we're going to take something of an audit of emptiness by exploring the threefold crisis that these opening verses leave us with, and through each phase of that crisis probe, how God could possibly restore something so devastating like what we find in these first five verses. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see this audit of emptiness in three parts. First, we're going to look at a nation in crisis. Second, we're going to look at a family in crisis. And then third, we're going to look at how their future is in crisis. A nation in crisis, a family in crisis, and then finally, a future in crisis. So, let's begin with a nation in crisis. Now, when we read through these verses just a, just a few minutes ago, you may have noticed how matter-of-fact it all is. We move from one tragedy to the next, and there's a lot of tragedy baked into just these first five verses, and it moves forward in a rather straightforward staccato style. And although there's a great deal of things that have been suffered, it's almost as if the narrative invites us as the reader into the numbness of suffering by stating things as straightforward as it does. After all, we probably know what it's like to be numb in our suffering, unable to add any color to our experience, and that seems to be what these opening five verses leave us with. And yet, when we slow down and we begin to evaluate and take stock of all of the suffering here, there's a lot more to these five verses than initially meets the eye. And what we come to find is that at every twist and turn in this specific example of suffering, mistakes were made. Now, as we press deeper into the book of Ruth, we're going to find that the entire book, it centers on one particular family, and more than that, on a couple individuals within this particular family. But interestingly, the first piece of information we come across here in verse 1 tells us something not about the family itself, but about the nation of Israel of which that family is a part. Notice that the first thing we learn is that the story of Ruth that unfolds over the next few chapters occurs during the days when the judges ruled. We read that in verse 1. Now, these judges, if you don't know anything about them, these were local tribal leaders who ruled over the 12 tribes of Israel. They were leaders that God raised up for a particular time here and there to lead His people militarily and also to impress upon his people the content of his laws and rules and statutes. We read all about these various judges in the book of Judges, the book that immediately precedes the book of Ruth. And that book, the book of Judges, probably covers about a 200-year span of time from about 1250 to 1050 BC. That must be when Ruth is then set. But if you remember from our sermon last Sunday, when Pastor Jacob, he talked about these differences between chronos time and kairos time. Chronos time refers to the sequence of time. Kairos time refers to the kind of time or the quality of time. Well, this reference to the days when the judges ruled in Ruth 1.1, it's not given simply to tell us chronos time, to tell us when things happened on a timeline. Rather, it's given to underscore the quality of time 
in which the entire book of Ruth is set. You see, the time when the judges ruled, yeah, that tells us about a 200-year span of time, but it also tells us more than that. It tells us that the book of Ruth takes place in a period of time that wasn't a great period in Israel's history. If you look back to the book of Judges, we would find that, yeah, the Lord raises up these judges here and there during these 200 years, but that 200-year span of time, it was largely a period of idolatry and autonomy. The end of the book of Judges sums up well this entire period of the judges when it tells us that in those days, in the time of the judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so when Ruth opens the way that it does, we're reminded that the events of Ruth unfold during a particularly dark season in Israel's history. And to make matters worse, there is, when Ruth opens, a famine in the land. Now, on the surface of it, that sounds like another matter-of-fact comment on the setting and little little else. But this isn't just a neutral comment on some historical circumstance that happened, although it is that. Because understand that all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord warned His people, His nation, that when they settled in the land of promise, if they started going after other gods and dabbling in sin and autonomy and flouting the demands of His law, well, they would experience at that time a number of divinely ordained curses, one of which would be famine in the land. And we're meant to read this reference to famine in Ruth 1.1 in that light. And so when Ruth opens, we discover that the nation of Israel is in crisis. There's no king. Everyone's doing what's right in his or her own eyes. And as a result, they're reaping the consequences of that because there's a famine in the land. But then from this 30,000-foot overview of the nation, which just we read about in the first half of verse 1, we, so, we see that the, the narrator zooms in on this particular man. He's described as a man from Bethlehem in Judah, and he's also later described as an Ephrathite. These are descriptions that tell us what kind of Israelite he is. He's a a man from the city of Bethlehem, which was located in the tribal territory of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and his particular family or clan within that tribe was the clan of the Ephrathites. Now, these descriptions, they remind us that real Israelites who you could point out and identify are wrapped up in this. It's not just names. They're real flesh and blood people who are wrapped up in this crisis and who also probably contributed to this crisis as well. But once we move beyond these simple descriptions that tell us a little bit about this man and his family, we read how he responds to this crisis. Apparently, this famine in the land has affected him and his family, which is ironic at first because we hear that they live in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem literally means house of bread. But when the Lord, when He determines to judge His people, to discipline His people, well, even house of bread isn't going to produce any bread. And so Elimelech, we find, He leads his people out of house of bread, out of Bethlehem, out of Judah, and he goes to a foreign nation called Moab. In short, he abandons his home, and kind of like Jonah, he runs from Israel's crisis. This isn't good. Now, on the one hand, maybe we shouldn't be too hard on Elimelech, because who could fault a guy for looking out for his family? 
But on the other hand, we have to understand that for an Israelite to leave the place where God specially dwelled among His people in the Old Testament, and then in turn to seek refuge in a nation like Moab, where all sorts of idolatrous worship to the false god Chemish was practiced, this isn't a good thing, and it's not even a neutral thing. This is a bad thing. Sinclair Ferguson commentator on Ruth, he sums this up well, where he writes, quote, instead of seeking grace, Elimelech's little family decide that if God will not provide what they need for their lives, they will take it for themselves. Now, it's interesting to, to, to maybe add to the irony a little bit that Elimelech's name literally means my God is king, and yet he doesn't act like it because the first thing we read about him is that he abandons the place where God had determined to reign as king over his people. And you know, I think it raises the question, at least, given the dark days of Israel, whether or not Elimelech could have lived up to his name a little bit better, rather than jumping ship to Moab when things got tough. You know, I find it somewhat interesting that throughout the book of Judges, again, the book that immediately precedes the book of Ruth, that every time Israel finds herself in crisis, which she often does, and Israel cries out to the Lord for help, which they often do, that God raises up someone to be the instrument of salvation for His people. Now, some of those instruments are better and some are worse than others, but whenever the nation is in crisis, the Lord we find is faithful to raise up people to guide Israel through it, and none of those judges seem to flee when things get tough. Now, there's nothing to suggest here that the Lord had specially called Elimelech to be a judge or anything of the sort. He's not one of those judges. We, we know almost nothing about him, in fact. But it should give us pause, I think, that when someone whose name means my God is king is faced with a national crisis in Israel, he abandons ship rather than staying put, trusting in God, and calling his neighbors back to the Lord as their king. When Israel is empty of spiritual vitality, Elimelech abandons his neighbors, and, and in a sense, he's also abandoning the Lord in the process. There's a story that comes to mind at this point uh, from the early church that I think is instructive. Um, during the mid-3rd century A.D., is about 260 A.D., well, well after the time of the book of Ruth, um, there was a plague, uh, an epidemic that broke out somewhere in the Mediterranean world. I think it was North Africa, but I'm not entirely sure. But during this plague, Christians in particular distinguished themselves by how differently they approached this time of crisis in comparison to their non-Christian neighbors. Um, there was a man named Dionysius who was a bishop of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, during that time. And he gives us a window into how Christians approached crisis during this period of time. Um, he points out that when, when, when Christians saw their neighbors suffering in this epidemic, they took action. He writes, heedless of the danger, Christians took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Dionysius tells us that Christians in doing that even became sick themselves, and many even died intending to the needs of their neighbors. And it wasn't only the, the average Christian on the one hand or the leaders of the Christians, the elders or bishops on the other who stepped in. All kinds of Christians, Dionysius tells us, from the elders and the deacons down to the laymen, the whole church acted in this manner. But what about everyone else? Well, Dionysius goes on to explain, he says that, that the non-Christians, the pagans, believed in the very behaved in the very opposite way. 
He writes, at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferer away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt. One commentary historian who reflects at length on this common Christian response in the early church, he observes that the Christian response actually resulted in higher rates of survival when plagues broke out and was probably, humanly speaking, a response that attracted many non-Christian people to Christianity. In short, when crisis broke out in the early church, Christians, we find time and time again, they ran towards it, not away from it, and they didn't abandon their suffering neighbors in the process. Now, it would probably be hard, maybe a little bit too hard, to pick apart Elimelech too much since since very little is said about him, but how about we pick pick apart our own hearts for a second? How do we respond when crisis hits and our expectations are thwarted. Now, keep in mind that Israel, Israel, that that was God's chosen nation, a kingdom of priests. They were set apart to be holy and set apart to be a special, unique people. But at this point in history, they weren't acting like it. And people like Elimelech, if not himself, had an opportunity to step in the gap and remind God's people who they were, who was king, and to start acting like the holy people of God they were set apart to be. And so when we see people we love in crisis, or even the church in general in crisis, do we use that as an opportunity as the people of God to step in and to be salt and light, to be a stable and loving presence in an otherwise unstable and chaotic world? Or are we more prone, like those non-Christian pagans in Dionysius' day, to jump ship and abandon those we've been called to love and serve when things get tough? As we put the spotlight on Elimelech and his failures, which I think the text invites us to do, we must not forget to reflect a little bit upon our own hearts too and ask ourselves the question, how do we respond in times of crisis? So Israel, we might say, is pretty empty at this point in their history. Bethlehem, we noticed, they're empty of food. House of Bread isn't producing any bread. They're empty of spiritual vitality. And Elimelech leads his family to what he perceives to be greener pastures in Moab. It's all sad. It's all tragic. But when he arrives and the spotlight moves from Israel to him and his family, this quest for something better quickly descends for them into a sojourn for survival, where the emptiness of the nation leads to the emptiness of a family. And what started out as a national crisis now becomes for him and his family, a family crisis. At least to our second point, second, where we hear about a family in crisis, Elimelech and his family in Moab in crisis. So we've already mentioned now that this move to Moab wasn't good. Uh, to give some background, Moab was one of those smaller nations that surrounded Israel in the day. And Moab and Israel, up until this point, um, they had quite a turbulent relationship. You know, when Israel spent their infamous 40 years wandering in the wilderness, which probably took place at least 100 years before the events of Ruth, um, we find that Israel was seduced into worshiping the gods of Moab by the women of Moab. And before that, their king, the king of Moab, hired a dude named Balaam to curse Israel. So Moab, we get this picture in the Bible, wasn't a place where an Israelite would thrive in their discipleship, just the opposite, in fact. It's it's a place you wouldn't want to go as an Israelite. And to make matters worse, 
when Elimelech and his family arrive in Moab, we find that what should have started out as a relatively short sojourn, that word indicates that what they intended perhaps initially was something short, something temporary, well, it quickly turns out to be something more permanent. They arrive and then they stay. They stay for what turns out to be 10 years. Now, they may have intended to go there for only a short period of time, but then they got comfortable and they settled down. It's kind of how sin works in our lives sometimes too, isn't it? We might only dabble here or there, but then we grow all too comfortable with things that were once for us off limits, and the things we dabble in once here or there then become cemented before we know it as a norm. Well, this is the first big crisis this family faces. They arrive in Moab, and then they stay. They settle down, And at first, they might not even see this as the crisis that it is. They're just settling into different land. What's the harm in that? But in the context of Ruth and of the Bible, we as the reader, we know better than that. And as soon as we turn to verse 3, this crisis that they were perhaps initially blind to now becomes unmistakable because tragically, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, he dies. The one whose name means, remember, my God is king, dies, which just so happens to coincide with how the family appraised God up until this point. He had already for them stopped being the authoritative king over their lives. Now, what might hope at this point that Elimelech's death might jolt the family back to their spiritual senses? Maybe that would remind them that they shouldn't be in Moab and they need to return to Israel. But while Elimelech's death is tragic, As we read on, we find that it seems that the family descends even further downhill in the wake of his death. Notice in verse 4 that after Elimelech dies, what do Naomi's two sons do? Well, we read that they take wives. Well, that's good news, right? A little reprieve in the midst of a tragedy, maybe some food for Naomi's soul, grandkids perhaps on the horizon? Well, not exactly, because the text tells us specifically that they take Moabite wives. You see, in the law of Moses, which was supposed to govern Israel's life, it was forbidden for Israelites to intermarry with the people of the nations, people like the Hittites and the Amorites and the Girgashites and the, and, and the Canaanites. Those were all off-limits marriages, and it seems like that also includes the Moabites. Now, don't mistake the issue here. The issue has nothing to do with, like, international marriages or interracial marriages being off-limits or anything of the sort. The issue had to do with marrying those who worship a different God. In Deuteronomy 7, the concern was that if you married those who worship Chemosh or Molech or Baal, then they would turn your sons away from following the Lord to serve their other gods. And throughout the Bible, we see this exact thing happen. It happens in the case of Solomon. It happens in the case of Ahab. It happens in the case of so many others who flout God's law. For a people who were set apart as holy, distinct, and special in the eyes of the Lord, they weren't supposed to put themselves in a position that would dilute their holy status. But sadly, this is what Elimelech's family has done and continue to do as they descend lower and lower, deeper and deeper into the crisis until finally, after 10 years of barrenness, which in this particular case is is meant to be understood as probably the curse that was brought about the sons, Malhan and Chilion, for their sin and law-breaking. Malhan and Chilion, we hear, whose names also have a meaning, their names mean sickness and destruction. Well, they live up to their names. 
and they die. Understand that what started out here as a better life, a quest for a better life, has turned out to be the sad place of burial for the men of the family. First Elimelech, and then Malhan and Kilion. Everything about this is tragic. And we'll enter even deeper into that tragedy in a moment when we turn to our final point. But don't miss that all of these tragedies the family experiences are a result of the disease of autonomy and of that of a pragmatic spirituality that infected the family ten years prior. To put the matter simply, the family saw the green pastures of Moab as the quick and relatively easy fix to their problems. But because the Lord doesn't approve of this course of action, what looked like greener pastures in Moab turns out to be the tragic burial grounds for their future. You know, shift gears for a moment. I'm reminded of a, of a battle that unfolded during the Second World War. No, surprise. Uh, it was a battle known as Operation Market Garden. Uh, to give a brief context for this, this battle took place in September 1944. After the Allies, they'd already landed in northern France, they'd already pushed the Germans for the most part out of France, and they were still on the offensive. But as the Allies began to push into Germany and prepare to enter into Germany, that was going to ratchet up the offensive significantly in its difficulty. And so the Allies, they devised a plan to drop thousands of airborne units behind German lines up in the Netherlands with the goal of ending the war by Christmas of 1944. It was quite a risky plan, but it was thought if they could end the war by Christmas, well, then it was worth it. But when the plans came together as they did and the operation got underway, there were a ton of issues that surfaced. Uh, for one thing, the drops weren't planned or executed all that well. Uh, the intelligence on the German positions was quite poor. Radio communication broke down, and there were a host of other issues on top of that. And at the end of the day, this operation was largely a failure. Allied losses more than doubled the German losses, and as a result of this failed operation, the war would drag on for many more months. In short, what Allied commanders thought might be a quick way to end the war, that the path of least resistance turned out to be a devastating loss that may have even prolonged the war in the process. And this is the problem with Elimelech's family. They pursue a quick fix the path of least resistance in dealing with all of the problems that hit close to home in Bethlehem. But in doing so, they pay a terrible price. Things just don't go the way they plan. So what about you? You know, like Operation Market Garden and, and like Elimelech and his family, we can convince ourselves that taking the path of least resistance is completely reasonable, even wise and responsible, and maybe sometimes it is, but when there are spiritual costs at stake, do we stop ever or pause and give consideration the weight those spiritual factors deserve? And when a certain course of action seems wise or looks appealing, do we ever stop to ask whether those paths are actually good according to God's Word? Ian Dugwood, New Testament commentator, or Old Testament commentator, puts it like this. He writes, quote, very often in those defining moments in life where we get to direct our own course for the future, the factors that weigh most heavily in our decisions are those that seem most likely to provide us with comfort and security. The bottom line in our lives is rarely God's will as it is revealed in His Word especially if it seems to cut directly across our best prospects for happiness and success. 
So as we evaluate this family crisis then, give some thought to how this all went down. And ask yourself some of the hard questions that I think it prompts. Namely, where do we select the path of least resistance, but in the process pay a heavy price in our discipleship? Now, if this descent into death in our text wasn't tragic enough, we find that Elimelech dies, his two sons die after they're married, and they leave no offspring. This entire family crisis has grave implications for the future. And this leads to our final point, third, a future in crisis. So, in the aftermath of Malhan and Kilion's death, we hear that in the tragic conclusion to the prologue, quote, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's a pretty matter-of-fact conclusion. It's because there are no words at this point. It's tragic. In fact, it's so tragic that Naomi's name isn't even used. She's simply called the woman. Now, we've pointed to the the meaning of names a few times thus far, and, and Naomi's name also carries a certain meaning too. Her name means pleasant. But in the wake of her tragedy, this tragedy, her name sounds just as mismatched as Elimelech's did earlier because there's nothing pleasant about her life when verse 5 concludes, and Naomi will make that very point later in chapter 1 down in verse 20. But to add to the tragedy, all the death that swallowed up the family is made even worse by what it means for Naomi's future. You see, whenever people fell on hard times in Israel, there were often layers of protection that were baked into the law to help people who couldn't help themselves. Uh, For instance, a young widowed woman could always return to her father's home for security or to restart her life if her husband died. A widow also had special avenues open for her in the law for remarriage or bearing children if her husband died and she remained childless. But Naomi, well, she's too old to take advantage of these common avenues of help. Her parents are probably dead at this point, She's well past childbearing years herself, and although nothing is said explicitly one way or another, she probably had no craft or trade skill that she could leverage to support herself. For Naomi, each possible layer of protection that was baked into the law are are really just like layers of Swiss cheese stacked on top of each other with the holes perfectly aligned, and Naomi falls through all of those holes that run through each layer down to the bottom When we scan over these first five verses then, it's all quite dark. There's no apparent hope for the future, no indication, at least not yet, that'll come, but at least not yet, that that things will turn in a positive direction. At this point, Naomi, she may emerge out of Moab as a survivor, but she's as close to death and misery as you can get. And yet for all of the misery There is, I think, the faintest glimmer of hope in the simple fact that none of the tragic circumstances that unfold in this passage are random. Remember that in everything, we talked about this, in everything from the famine in the land of Israel to the death of Malhan and Kilion, we mentioned that these things are best understood as the judgment of God since they conform to what the law told us we should expect for people that disobeyed. But almost paradoxically, it's in that covenant judgment that hope emerges. Because if God had not been absent in their sin, then perhaps hope remains that God wouldn't be absent in stooping down to lift Naomi out of her despair either. 
and the nation along with her. In other words, if God is faithful to judge His people, which He's been, then perhaps just maybe He would be faithful and merciful to save His people too. And that's exactly what we'll find when the book of Ruth moves past the prologue. In the midst of such a tragedy and the bleakest of outlooks for the future, when everything seems like just a fight for survival, we're going to come to find that the Lord, the Lord sees. You know, there's a story in, in Luke's gospel that comes to mind at this point. Um, in Luke chapter 7, in the course of Jesus' ministry, we read that um, one day in Jesus' ministry, He journeys uh, to a town called Nain. And as He draws near to the entrance of this city called Nain, Luke tells us that there was, at the same point, a funeral procession that was coming out of the city of Nain. Uh, we read, Luke tells us, that a young man had died, he was being carried out, and there was a considerable crowd that enveloped this funeral procession and, and participated in the procession too. It was probably a noisy affair, a noisy crowd. There may have even been paid mourners in the process, but through all of it, we're told that when Jesus and His disciples come along, come around to this chaotic procession, this noisy, loud procession, we find that Jesus zeroes in on one person. In the midst of all of the chaos, Jesus, we're told, He sees the mother. And we learn that this young man who had died, it was, it was her only son. And to make matters worse, she too, she was a widow as well. Kind of sounds like Naomi, doesn't it? But in the midst of her grief, we find that Jesus sees. He sees her. And then He meets her in her grief. He, he instructs her not to weep. And then he, He's able to raise the son, this young man, from the dead and, and gives him back to His mother. And amazingly, compassionate miracle that prompts the great crowd who witnesses all of this unfold to glorify God and then declare that through Christ and this miracle, God has visited His people. In her darkest moment, Jesus, we find, meets this widow, and He brings life out of death when everything seems so hopeless, and in doing so in an instant, restores her future. And this is what the Lord is going to do for Naomi as the book presses along. Judgment, as determinative as it's been up until this point, isn't the death knell in Naomi's life. Because very shortly in the narrative, we're going to hear that bread returns to Bethlehem. And word reaches Naomi that in that, the Lord has visited His people. If she would have any hope for a reversal for her future, it would have to come from the hand of the Lord who sees the plights of His people and then acts. And in the case of Naomi, that's exactly what's going to happen. And brothers and sisters, this is the same hope that we cling to as well. Now, maybe you're in a place today like Naomi was, one in which at least the, the future that you once dreamed about feels like it slipped or is slipping through your fingers? Does it feel like once, what was once the pursuit of the happy life, the, the, the life that had so much potential to offer, has now turned over the years into a miserable fight for survival? If that describes you in any sense, know that the God we worship and the God that Naomi will return to once again is a God who's seen our despair, who's entered into our suffering, and who's done something about it. You know, we spoke earlier about Naomi's family and how they chose the path of least resistance and their sojourn to Moab, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, He didn't choose the path of least resistance. 
The Bible tells us that though Christ was in the very form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant. When we were without hope and without God in the world, Jesus Christ entered into our despair. He identified with us in our sin and in our shame while He Himself had no sin in order to save us from it and then to give us a future that even our most eccentric ambitions could never conceive of nor achieve. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ was brought low in every way except for sin so that He could raise us up with Him in our lowness and seat us with Him in heavenly places. Now, maybe you're in a position this morning where you've made a lot of bad decisions in life, like Elimelech did, and now you're paying the price for that, and the future doesn't look good. Or maybe you're paying the price, as is so often the case, for something that you didn't necessarily do wrong, but in living in a fallen and rebellious world, you're reaping the toil of the sinfulness of that world, and likewise, the future doesn't look good. Understand, though, that God, our God, is a God who sees the plights of His people, and He's already done something about that through Jesus Christ. And the only response that guarantees for us a future weight of glory beyond all comparison is that we would see by faith the one who has first seen us, and that we would cling to Him and His promises as our only comfort in life and in death. We can't reverse a bleak future. We can't pull off an amazing rescue plan for our souls like Shackleton did as shipmates back in the turn of the 20th century. We need someone greater than us to step in from on high and to raise us up with Him to something better. And in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what God has done. And so, how do you respond to Jesus? Don't slip into death or hopeless cynicism when there is a future glory for you and me in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, again, how do you respond to Jesus? Well, as we prepare to close with that question in mind, let me leave us with this. Know, brothers and sisters, know that the Lord can fill up again what has been made empty. Remember the question that we asked at the very beginning of our sermon, can God, is God able to fill up again things that have been made empty? To be sure, these opening five verses in Ruth detail a tragic descent, a descent into emptiness. By the end of it, Israel's empty, Bethlehem's empty, Naomi's empty. But you know, sometimes the Lord brings us to a place of emptiness that He might fill us up again with the only thing that can really make us full, and this is exactly what the Lord will do in the life of Naomi. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're feeling drained right now and like you're on empty, look to the one who giveth more grace, the one who has a pattern of filling up empty things and let's prepare ourselves even now to receive bread and wine that points us to the one who is abundantly faithful to feed us with food that can really nourish us and that can really make us full. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel of our salvation that we have, that even when we in our sin and folly sojourn to places that aren't good for us or aren't wise for us, and we reap the consequences for that, that we have hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through Christ you have met us in our sin and despair, and you promise to lift us up out of that. I pray, Lord, as we reflect maybe on crushed dreams ourselves or um, hopelessness that seems to be all too pervasive in our lives, that you would remind us of the gospel promises before us, that you 
have filled and are able to fill empty things only through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would renew us in this truth in sacrament, just as you renewed us in this truth by your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.